Yeah. I'll react if I had to. Put some things in the past to and don't let them distract you, but react if you have to. Yeah. I'll react if I had to. Put some things in the past to and don't let them distract you, but react if you have to. Yeah. React if you have to. Yeah. Don't know the time, boy. Just wait that I'm yeah. One of a kind, yeah. What's on your mind, yeah. What hard to find, yeah. Beautiful mind, yeah. Still in my prime, yeah. Just know that I'm here. What's up, guys? Pondoff Synonymous, episode 33. Um, here we are. Jeff, how you doing? We're here, man. I'm good. I've got family over right now. Uh, little baby in the house getting me ready for our baby boy we found out we're having a baby Booyah! boy yeah i fucking called it you did call it man so yeah we're, we're gonna have a little baby boy running around yeah <laughs> he's got that little cannoli they showed it to us on the on the thing but i i did not see it i just took their word for it so i can't i cannot uh, see anything on those well, you can ultrasounds you got a little pecker so uh you, you yeah know, probably <laughs> just kidding looked like, just... looked like me <laughs> <laughs> oh man well that congratulations that's Thank exciting you. um we'll get them on the ice in no time all and, right uh, you can be his coach speaking of uh speaking of getting on the ice i, I this is uh i'm fucking thrilled today i i really am we have uh, a guest an old friend who's seen uh both shades of chris pondoff if you will uh <laughs> and um uh has always been a mentor to me and Chaz, I don't. Was your number thirty three? At thirty three is a goaltender's sweater. Patrick Waugh, man. Yeah, and here you are on thirty three. Yeah, so, so Chaz, Chaz, Frankie is our guy today, um, our guest, and um, for a, for a variety of reasons. A, he's a he's like a brother to me, and um, a big brother in the terms of uh, he's had to had to get me out of some trouble and. Uh, would often come down pretty hard on me, probably harder than my old man would uh, uh, at times. Um, but uh, but also Chaz, uh, Chaz is definitely in in the industry, if you want to call it that, um, with his career path and and, and he, he's he's always been even before I think you started getting paid to do what you do, Chaz. You've always been a of the uh, social worker. Uh, ilk, if yep. you will. So, we're definitely going to get into to how you're changing the world, man. And um, it, shortly, but uh, but look first, at that I ink. Just, yeah, man, it's it's fucking There's hot. There's plenty of it. Uh huh. A little bit of it. That was a that was a post uh, post hockey career. Um, art artwork because yeah, yeah you that was later in. At college, I think, when you started, and then you got hooked. Yeah, I had a a rule: I wouldn't get any tattoos until I had money, because <laughs> I didn't want I didn't want to put anything on prime real estate just because I could afford it. And so, <laughs> once, I was, once I was making a living, I said, "Okay, we can get started and let's get going." And and it's been going ever since, and I love it. Same person's done pretty much all the same work. Her name's Amanda Pepper. She's in St. Louis, and oh, yeah, so, all right. Yeah, well, best. I it's you, you do often see people, uh, and this isn't a judgment to each their own, but they have a, uh, I would say thousands of dollars worth of tattoos. But uh, you know, you wonder 
if that money could have been, could could have been more uh, responsibly spent. But I, I've got a buddy. He's got a chess piece, and it's like lyrics to a song. But he got them when he was drunk, and they're the wrong lyrics. God bless him. <laughs> God love him. Yeah, yeah. They look well, cool, but nobody knows the song, so he's it's over. You, you might want to send him this podcast. I'm surprised I didn't do something like that. Uh, you know him. My day. It's Brando. <laughs> it's Brando. That's fucking beautiful. <laughs> We're gonna have to get him on one day. Yeah. Um, so, Chaz, man, thanks for being here. This is uh, this is exciting. Um, I think you were always one that that probably knew. Well, you tried to write my ship a couple times, and I would always listen or hear. I, I don't know how that saying goes. Yeah, don't worry about that. It didn't. It didn't land. All oh, right. <laughs> but but a for effort, brother, and. Uh, and I finally got to a to a place where uh, you know I'm a, a work in progress, but um, but I, I cleaned up my act a, a little bit, well, as sure. you can probably attest to. But um, I just want to start with with how, you know how you and I met, and and hear your perspective um, on on where some things were my maybe we're going sideways with me, and then we'll you know we'll laugh a little bit, but we'll get to. It, and then where I want to get to is with what you're doing now and, and, and what you've seen, uh, pick on a, you know, pick your brain on your expertise, uh, on trauma sure. and, uh, addiction, um, and, and how connected they can be, uh, and how, uh, you know, the mental health game is, uh, I, I, I see movement and progress in, in the arena, but, uh, I think it's still lacking, and there's still the stigma. But um, I'd like to talk a little bit about that today, and uh, and want to hear about your new your new venture. So yeah. I'm really excited to, to to learn about it too, because I when I when I saw it, I um, I just beamed up with excitement, and I just I, I already have a vision of. A, a drop in the bucket of the people it's going to help because it's going to help i think way more people than than you can even imagine um it's the hope so so congratulations on that and we'll get to that but uh but the good old ice rink huh Chaz? it's still there it, well it's a it's a graveyard right yeah 100 percent. there's uh maybe a good thing because there's a i mean a lot of things that happened in that building that are probably best left. Uh, and you know, we should have, um, I love the fact that we all had that job and we sat around complaining about working in an ice rink and how terrible the ice rink was and how awful they treated us and how the owner didn't care. And we were, he was never around. And then you think back and go, they should have fired us every day. We were <laughs> like, I did, I did, we did a fireable offense every single shift and and I was I was the manager. I mean, I was, you know, I had a different color T-shirt than everybody else, which hinted at wonderful symbolic leadership uh, presence. And instead, it's just like, you know, somebody saying, "Hey, the we needed a, a fresh keg tapped and Westoff's throwing watermelons off the roof." And I'm just like, "Well, those two things will take care of themselves. I'm going to stay up here, <laughs> sharpen a pair of skates, like." And uh, and then we wonder why it sank into the ground. Yeah. Well, it's funny you bring that up because just before we came on, I started thinking about 
how many times um, 16, 17, maybe 18 and that I, years of age that I drove that Zamb- Zamboni shit-faced sure. <laughs> on the clock doing an ice make. Um, yeah. and, and that's probably frowned upon in most LLCs. Or S-Corps, I would think. Yeah, I, I would be scared of a similar action as a business <laughs> owner currently, yeah. Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, it, 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 Jeff, I uh, we, we had you never probably went into that, uh, not to, to the ice rink at Fairy Heights. No, it yeah. was, uh, by the time I would have had a chance to, it was already condemned or shut down or whatever, because mine's subsidence here in the Metro East, you got to love it. <laughs> Who knew? Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, yeah, I wouldn't. I mean, that might have been something to vet uh, before. See, I spent anyway. a lot of time in the East Alton ice rink, so that's not any better, probably. Beautiful I, this time of year. Yeah, <laughs> I've told uh, I told Jeff I've been I've been thrown out of East Alton ice rink probably more times than he's been Ooh. in East Alton. Ice rink. <laughs> For sure. It's that Granite City Cahokia thing, man. It still runs deep. I still uh, chirp Tyler Salberger and. Bobby Mezeros on Facebook all as much as I fucking can. <laughs> well, Pablo, uh, I, met, I met you when you were 14. Yeah. I mean, That's I'm right. a couple years older, and I, so I was working there as my first job at 16, and you were 14, and so I would have already seen some of uh, your earliest uh, unprovoked fistfights. <laughs> unprovoked. You always had a good story, though. You could always yeah. walk me through exactly why it was somebody else's fault that you had to beat the shit out of them. <laughs> <laughs> this is you know, great. I knew a different. I know a different pond off than, than you, you guys know. <laughs> you know, Chaz. It, it's funny you say that because when I started, um, really, when that slope started getting steeper on the way to rock bottom, uh, I became a, even better at at being able to make it somebody else's or everybody else's yeah. fault. So, I, I mean, you become a master in that game um, and, and in the worlds of addiction and uh, alcoholism. There's no doubt. I, I do remember, I think it was, yeah, I was 14 when when uh, we came over to watch a game at your house and there was, a, you know, the Chaz always had a strict no alcohol policy and I must have missed that memo because um, I, I smuggled a couple pints of, uh, I think it was peppermint schnapps in and then it didn't take, I thought I was pretty smart and going to be able to get that past Chaz, but it didn't take too long for him to. Well, he, he comes in. He comes into my place now, where I lived at, and this is high school. Where I lived at, um, I lived in a duplex, and I just had the basement of the duplex. You come in through the garage, and so there were always a lot of people coming and going. But I didn't want to lose privileges because I like just hanging out with people. So we didn't drink there. People didn't get high there. Nothing like that. It was always just hanging out. And people knew that, and and you know the only person that was really going to blatantly disrespect it was Pondoff, and so <laughs> he comes in, he comes in with basically his arms around a five gallon bucket that's about uh, three cubes of ice, a few gallons of booze, and then like a little bit of soda to trick me into thinking that he just loves Diet Coke, and and I'm like, get that shit out of here, and he's like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, well, we'll get you, we'll get you another one. I'll dump this one in the toilet, and we'll get you another soda from the fridge down there in the laundry room. And uh, and then I just see what it looks like to see a rattle from a baby. Take a rattle from a baby. Right? Like he just loses his mind um, because he's he's fourteen, fifteen years old, and the reality is 
I'm about to pour 50 bucks worth of uh, liquor down the toilet, and it was about eight hours a man hour to get it. Get man yeah. to get it. He's working his ass off to get that booze. And so he was whew, he was in his feelings that day. Uh, yeah. I, I, I think I got uh, uh, thrown in the – at one point you got so pissed off at my tantrum, you threw me in the bathtub, shut the curtain, walked out and shut yeah. the door and said, don't come out yeah. until you grow up. There's a little, there's a little time out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's um, that's when it started. I'll say. I mean, and uh, and that was when it was just you know fun in high school. But um, we th- that that ice rink did turn into. I still think it, and I may be the one to write it. Um, I think it could be a, a setting for a, a pretty ch- cheesy but make money in advertisement. Um, fucking series like Dawson's Creek that me and my wife are binging right now. No, oh, good for you. I mean, there's a lot of underage drinking, underage, quite a bit of underage. Well, I don't want to say underage and the S word together, but yeah, teenagers having sex in that facility on the Zamboni, not mentioning any names. No, we'll I think you need to get that. Seth Rogen involved in that one. I think that's right up his alley. Hockey. Yeah. And, I mean, yeah. and then and then there was the whole playing hockey thing, and um, some of the best parts about about working there was when. When you'd get in a fight and you'd get thrown out of the game, you'd go take a quick shower and then put on your employee shirt and then walk out and start working. And be like, wait, what you did? What do you? I mean, you can't do anything about it. I guess. I, I mean, Chaz had his own uh, fish to fry when he was running the pro shop and uh, merchandise. For some reason, would always walk out the back door. I grew yeah. legs. I think inventory was not fun. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I can hear you calling a uh, one of my uh, one of my counterparts, colleagues on the ice uh, through life on uh, num- probably a bigger shit disturber than than I've been, um, and and calling him and saying, "Hey, uh, we're, we're missing a, a pair of Bauer five thousands." <laughs> I mean, I, I understand when I'm short a couple rolls of sock tape, but <laughs> we're going to need yeah. you to get we're going to need you to locate maybe some five thousands and. and yeah. Some the most expensive item that we have in the shop. So <laughs> thanks for being subtle. And then uh, I would always, for some reason, coax Chaz in the, to to hire in either the girls that I liked or the girl my girlfriend, and and that was a great fucking idea getting a, <laughs> getting them chops at the ice rink and around a bunch of fucking horny ass hockey players, right? Yeah, I I felt so protective of anybody that you brought into your shitstorm, <laughs> And, and of course, like I'll be the first one to admit, I mean, we're talking about being 18, 19 years old. So I'm also unqualified to be protective of anyone's <laughs> shitstorm. I can't handle my own shitstorm. I'm 18 years old. Um, but the thing is, I mean, yes, you would bring a tornado of energy into the circumstance <laughs> Um, and it would, it would inevitably include some kind of, uh, you know, you know, Chazzy, um, I might have fucked this one up <laughs> and that, <laughs> and it's like, yeah, yeah, we, we know, we know. Thanks for joining the party. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, the reality is, uh, and I think about, I think about you and I think about your dad. And, and, you know, the people that we all knew together, but 
you know, the one thing that I can vouch for, if you think of all the people that we're mentioning, so maybe the people that were in my, that stayed in my orbit. So people like, you know, Hags and, and mm-hmm. McKinney and them. Um, you know, the one thing we can say for sure, though, is like all of us had a, a big part of our heart for you. I mean, we all loved you. We all still do love you. And that, and that was one of those things that when, um, even though you were scrappy and talking shit and causing trouble, um, there was a lot of times where you had such a wonderful ability to, to absorb it though, too, you know, like you and I have told the story a million times of Al McKinnis kicking the door open, uh, <laughs> into the hallway, screaming about how bad of a ref your dad is. And, you know, there's a version of you that somebody, somebody in the crowd could have said that it was a bad call and you would have thrown him down a flight of stairs. And then there's a version of you that Al McKinnis can say that was a bad call, and you're just like, this is amazing. Al McKinnis just said my dad sucks. Right? He handled that pretty well, too. <laughs> you, told, you, you always told that line in a way that I think all of us were very well aware that we just, you know, we love you and we're going we're gonna to take care of you as best we can, but you weren't going to lead anything too far astray for us anyways. The, the only person that you were going to beat the shit out of a lot of times was yourself, you know. And oh, yeah. Well, we didn't want that in the long run, but, you know, it was a risk I was willing to take. Yeah, yeah. I took a, a th- that trip out to, to Swansea or Freeburg or wherever the fuck that was, um, uh, was, was alcohol-induced and uh, turned into quite the night. I... I I did did a well I did well in that scrap until the uh, state trooper got a hold of me and then yeah. Yeah, I no think my, yeah I still got my uh, I think I still have teeth teeth damage from uh, from that fucking guy. I don't know but, what the uh, statute of limitations is on a backyard fist fight, but yeah, was- <laughs> yeah. So so I I you know I've, I've had my ass kicked by a by a police officer or two, but. Um, it, all my fault. I will say that one hundred percent. Do you you tra- when when we started going to college? Believe it or not. Well, first off, let me go back to that McKinnis story, Jeff. I need to clarify something with you, brother. That yeah. was a fucking sh- scrimmage game. It wasn't right. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and it was an offsides call that he that Al thought Tom missed. Uh, so <laughs> and that's hear that Tom, much. Tom said to Al, he said, hey, 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 settle down, Al, baby. You're going to make the fucking team, brother. (laughs) (laughs) So, so, Chaz, you were, were, when, when I was, uh, when I would (laughs) randomly walk, uh, when we got out of college and started working, uh, I think we were out of college at the time. Yeah, I was home from Champaign and you were, you're three or four years older than me, so you're on doing your thing. And, um. I would make my way. Uh, we we lived close enough to each other to where I could walk over like a good neighbor. Yeah. Oh, it was and, something. And and say say hello. Um, usually to watch a hockey game or just to show up on a Tuesday night at at ten thirty or something. Yeah. To lay down in my living room floor, <laughs> try to give booze to my dog. Well, now Jeff, I, I remember the next morning after the first time I went to Chaz's, I said, "Hey, Chaz." Was I really that drunk, or do you re- do you have a three legged dog? And, <laughs> and he had a, he had a, he happened to have a three legged dog. He's in, he's in the room with me too. Is he really? Yeah. Oh my god! Tell him yeah. I said hi, Diego. Right? Yeah, Diego yeah. made it. He's still around. Wow, that's awesome. Uh, he uh, he probably he, I did try to give him I think a couple cocktails and uh, 
I said to Chaz and and who he was living with at the time, I said, "Hey, if I had three legs, I'd take a fucking drink." You know, <laughs> <laughs> sounds about right. <laughs> didn't I? Didn't I pull the old ultimate Uncle Buck though that that trip over and and uh, you told me that you lived in the White House on you know? Yeah, you scared. You, you had to. I had to give flowers to my neighbor. <laughs> Apparently, I showed up, Jeff, and I was banging on this guy's door like, Chaz, let me the fuck in. What? <laughs> Wrong house. <laughs> yeah, and it was uh, – and and the only reason that, – that story would have been uh, a drop in the bucket except my neighbor across the street who was accosted in this scenario, um, they weren't home. And their daughter was like house-sitting. So he was like just inside checking on the house and somebody just starts banging on the door and yelling. And so she calls the police. Yeah, of course. Um, as, as, as anyone would guide her to do. Yeah. And, uh, and so the next day I, uh, I brought some flowers over to the actual residents of the home and they were, uh, they were very receptive of the story, which is, uh, uh, in its own way, how I, I do, I do think this is one of the reasons why you were always so deserving of, uh, being a lovable figure is, uh, God bless you. A lot of those stories end that way, you know, like they do end with, here's a bouquet of flowers and I hope nobody's got any PTSD. Um, and, and people saying, yeah, no, we're good. Thanks. It's, you know, it's all right. It's a fun story for all of us. And I'm like, well, in the long run, it's not going to be a fun story for him, but the rest of us. <laughs> well, you saw it coming. Yeah. And, and as much fun, I mean, I, there's nobody I'd rather, and maybe not today because of, uh, I'm still not over it, but to talk hockey with, um, it's not that the, way we're playing right now as far as the blues are concerned and what happened last night in overtime but i don't know if you get online or not Chaz, but people are already shitting on fucking bennington like oh yeah he's done as far I as mean, concerned. it's unfucking believable this guy <laughs> what he just did for us and they're already after two fucking hockey games and when bo horvat's on a fucking breakaway it's not a soft goal i don't care and the, the book on bennington is go five hole on him if you want a shot and yeah so the guy did it. He's a world class goal scorer, and now, now, now we want to trade him. He's a finisher, yeah. And then, oh man, but um, Chaz was a goaltender in his day, Jeff. And uh, goaltenders, I've often said, are um, either the nicest human being you'll ever meet, or they're um, borderline sociopathic. And I don't think there's an in between. <laughs> There's a lot of there's a lot of good kind of stoic thoughtful <clears throat> goaltenders out there, and then there's Ed Belfour. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. And, I, uh, I think got arrested while intoxicated and bribed the police by saying he would give them a billion dollars. A billion. <laughs> you got to aim am. high. Sounds good. We'll let him yeah. go. Yep. You got to aim high. I um, I would have been a terrible goaltender. I I I would just move every time somebody shot at me. I'd be like, eh, go ahead, gotta get out of here. <laughs> we we I I had some goaltenders uh, through the youth hockey that uh, <laughs> were of such, and uh, they, they don't last very long. I I will say, and this is a you know, and, and Kelly Chase said this on a on a podcast. I think I, I heard it on a or a local radio show, and it couldn't be more right, that, that, that the sport of ice hockey, for the most part, this is always exceptions, right, has a way of reading out the assholes. Um, 
because I could get in a fight with anybody on the ice that was wearing the uh, opposing sweater. Um, but I'll, as soon as we get showered up, have a drink with the guy. Um, and I did, though, that one time, one time there were some, there was an Altoff Bevel East High School game, Chaz, and there were some fucking jack-offs in the score box, God bless their soul, running their mouth to me because I was a freshman. I had a target on my back, so I was on the, you know, and uh, I asked those guys to meet me outside, and um, I had no intention of fighting these guys in the parking lot. They were pretty big motherfuckers, but uh, I even know who you're. I remember who you're talking about. Yeah, Chaz, after the yeah, Chaz was working, uh, I don't. I think you had already graduated Altoff. I think, or either that, or you were playing. But after the game, before um, we left the locker room area, Chaz was able to find me and say, "You might not want those guys are actually waiting in the parking lot. They <laughs> they don't they don't play and." Uh, I, I, I'm advising you not to pursue that, <laughs> and uh, so I had a I had a police escort out the back, <laughs> out the back door, and wasn't my it may have been my first police escort from a game, but not my my last. You know, these fuckers can't take a joke, you know yeah. <laughs> what their fucking problem is. Who knew you were so funny? <laughs> <laughs> so Chaz, let's let's get to um, let's get to your your heart, man. I and I you know. Not trying to fucking sound all foo foo here, but I can handle that. What what led you down the the road of of social work? Well, you know, for the longest time, I thought I had a real like the real classic story of like a therapist and a social worker of hey, you know, I've always been uh, the the good friend or the trustworthy friend, or I always like to listen to people or help people, and and I always had like a real classic. Uh, story uh in my mind but it it was kind of later on in the game that i realized that some of it was you know um and this isn't a knock on like my family my my parents are great loving people but like you know i was a kid growing up that uh nobody saw and nobody heard you know like nobody really checked on me asked about me that kind of thing and and so i kind of grew into being in a as we say in my world i became the adult i needed when i was a kid you know, I, I eventually grew into being a social worker that just wants to see and hear and, and listen and create a safe space because, uh, there's a lot of aspects of that that were kind of denied me coming up. Um, and so I, that's, that became the story that I realized through my own work. You know, I, I mean, any of us that are in my field as social workers and therapists, most of us have done a lot of our own work in therapy and that was kind of what brought me to it. Um, and so I feel very fortunate that I had the, uh, that I, I stumbled into that, that I became uh, a therapist. I knew I wanted to be a therapist when I got into college. I spent one semester as a communications major in SIUE thinking that I was going to call hockey games for a living. <laughs> um, I even took French in high school just in case I had to go and, uh, and, and call some games in French, which would have been a real dumpster fire because I was not that good at French. <laughs> I did take four years of it. I can just hear you in the in the in the in the queue, <laughs> the Quebec junior major hockey league calling, you know, Vinny Lecavi. in some kind of franglais language of just like he shoots and a score and like I just put an accent on English words is all probably <laughs> that would be great that would be great but yeah I, I knew I wanted to be a therapist I started as a, a psych major at eighteen I jumped right in knowing that I'd go to grad school do what I had to do. 
Um, and then I went and got my master's in social work at St. Louis University and my clinical license and, you know, uh, was off to the races. But it, it took a little while to realize that the short version of a, an important story is I just I just grew into the adult that I needed when I was a kid. Now, I wrote that quote down. Um, yeah, that's great. When you said that, because I immediately when you said that, some some light bulbs started going off like, oh, I know that per- that person, that person that I can re- resonate with that that quote's going to that'll turn. They'll be like, oh, shit. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, yeah. And my I, I know in my life, Chaz was always that guy to go to with with the hard shit, um, you know, with like he said i mean i would whether it was a fight or struggling with you know when my parents split up or um the, you know the real life shit the heavy shit chaz was the guy and you'd almost have to uh call him ahead of time and schedule a fucking appointment because he was <laughs> that forever all of our our whole group uh, surrounded around that ice rink and um and he was very protective of of, of, of all of us and um, I think is still friends with a lot of us still and pretty close. I mean, it's that's how we've always kind of looked up to, to Chaz. So when I had a – I did have a friend growing up as a child that he was obsessed with, with becoming a cop and played with cop. Like, wanted – always wanted to be the cop. I always wanted to be the fucking bad guy, obviously. <laughs> and, and the kid like, is now um, – he not, didn't – become a police officer per se but he is running like a 911 center and he was always an M- he wanted to be an EMT so when Chaz decided to choose this career path it wasn't a surprise just like it wasn't a surprise with that other kid you, and some people you're like that he's going to be that when he grows up you know and and it comes to fruition um and I will admit um shamefully that I didn't no, or uh, unfortunately, I, I cared because I had a friend that did it, but he didn't really connect the dots on what the fuck a social worker was back when I was living the lifestyle I was living. And my apologies for that, but I've I've gotten a fast you know course in it because I fucking married one, <laughs> and yeah. um, and I think before we came on, uh, you introduced me to your uh, your new girlfriend and um wonderful wonderful girl named holly right and uh she's a social worker so i said oh you're you know one of the underpaid doing the most important work out there and i think that's that's a pretty true statement for most social workers out there that's where it's at man the teachers and the social workers most underpaid doing the most important stuff Mm -hmm. well the good news is the republicans want to give so much money to social workers and, and built, you know, right? Is that, yeah, is that it's been accurate? Great. It's the last <laughs> four years, it's just been pouring in. Like, <laughs> just had no idea. You're, you're like blowing your nose with hondos, right? Yeah, finally got this 401k I always needed. <laughs> um, without going too far down that rabbit hole, uh, so Chaz, what, what, out of college, what, uh, what was your first gig in this? Um, you know, I, my first big boy job was I was a counselor in a prison. I was a drug and alcohol counselor in Department of Corrections, um, which I learned an incredible amount and also like 
Um, and I'll get into a little bit of my background here with uh, some spirituality stuff too, if you don't mind. But uh, please, I um, it doesn't fall on me. It doesn't fall on deaf ears that I uh, I had no business being a drug and alcohol counselor in a prison. Uh, I've never had a drink. Um, I was 23, going on 24 years old, uh, and just got a job because <laughs> once again it was social work and they paid nothing. And I walked in and interviewed. I interviewed all ready to go with all my theory and everything. And I'm walking out with the assistant director of the program, and I said, "I hope to hear from you guys." And he goes, "You think I'm not going to hire you? <laughs> How many people do you think we interview?" <laughs> um, <laughs> so I worked there for a bit. But I did realize in a similar time frame that I, I had the, the early makings of some real uh, internal hubris, that I was too um, – I was I started drinking my own Kool-Aid because the reality is as a kid that grew up overweight and, and, and picked on with no self-confidence and no sense of self, um, I was not ready to be good at something. I, I was not, you know, so I was getting credit as a counselor. I'm, I'm putting together programs. I'm working with senior counselors. I was getting, I was good at it. I, I, I enjoyed it. I loved it. And I wasn't good at being good at something. And so I kind of just leaned too far into my own process and, and believe in my own crap. And thankfully, that's about the time I found uh, Buddhism. That's when I started practicing Zen. Um, uh, which now I practice some different forms of Buddhism, but uh, Zen was what cut me off at the knees the same way that, you know, you had to be cut off at the knees at a certain point. Like I needed something to say, you are not this goddamn important. (laughs) You need to stop believing your own bullshit and realize there's a lot of stuff bigger than you that you don't know a damn thing about. And that's, that saved my ass. And that was right at that first big boy job. That was sitting there with a, a bunch of, you know, we call them inmates, you know, they're people. Um, but sitting there with a bunch of people going, oh, my God, these are my guys, too. Amen There's nobody that. different in this building. I got a different badge. I got a different ID than everybody else. But I'm sitting around talking about the, the new episode of Rescue Me with a table full of guys that, you know, they're locked up and I'm not. But we're the same people. And that, that first job really saved me. I also learned an incredible amount about methamphetamine in that first job. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> that was what I was specializing in at the time, was treating meth. We had a meth unit at that prison. It's fucking gone off like wildfire, man. Um, and what it does to people. I, you know, and you, you, when people are in, in jail or prison for meth, they are sober from meth for the most part, right? Oh, yeah. Where I was. I mean, they yeah. people talk a lot about how there's drugs all over prisons, which I'm not an expert on speaking on. I'll take their word for it. But where sure. I was, because it was a treatment place, everybody was short. Everybody didn't have that much time on their sentence, mm-hmm. um, and they weren't there an incredibly long time, and it was minimum security in that, you know, a guy, you didn't have a lot of fights, you didn't have a lot of brawls, you didn't have a lot of, like, maybe the dangerous stuff. It was a it, you know, it was a drug treatment facility. That's it. It wasn't like Oz no. on HBO. Yeah. No, nobody like wheeling around telling a story about who's going to get stabbed <laughs> the next day. Yeah. Great yeah. show. A um, lot of uh, never mind. Uh, but yeah, anyway. So, <laughs> but the reason I bring that up about about math is that you, you know, there's some pretty good documentaries out there that are um, that are just following. 
meth addicts and mm-hmm. eventually you either end up dead or in prison. There's just, that's it. Those are your, those are your two destinations. And I say dead, we're all going to get to that point, but a, a very early, um, death. And I mean, uh, almost as you die, almost as a skeleton and just, that's all that's left. Um, and I mean that literally and figuratively, uh, because by that time, I think bridges have been so burned, uh, and yeah. with relationships that you really die pretty much, uh, unfortunately it's, uh, alone and, and bare boned. But on these documentaries, the, the inmates, um, that are in for meth-related uh, offenses, that we're mostly using, right, um, are sober and they're brokenhearted of what it's done to them. They're able to recognize what the drug has done to them. And there are long-term, even more so than, than heroin re- users and, and alcoholics like myself, meth fucks you up long term even when you become sober you're it's still a better life right but you have lasting paranoia am i right about that and and yeah and you you i i they used to say you know the meth bugs uh when people are using meth they start feeling like insects are crawling through their skin so they they just destroy their fucking flesh trying to get them out i don't think those carry over as much but there's definitely remnants of that so you, you there's scars there's meth mouth all that stuff but but I love what you said is they are people um, and there's no question about it. And, and we better get our hands around this shit that because it's funny that nothing's funny about it, but when human beings, it, it was easy to discard it. And maybe it still is today is all that junkie, that junkie. Mm-hmm. And then, I've seen far too often people that think like that. Next thing you know, it hits right in their fucking household. And now that junkie becomes their son, their sister, their brother. And, and that's the, it's not those people over there or those people under the bridge are addicted to this shit. It's, you better watch your kid. You better, it's happening to adults that are, that are already with families. It's, it's spread. It's, grip into people's houses now uh, so the sooner that people recognize it and fuck that stigma and say these human beings need help um the more you'll learn about it and the more you'll realize uh, i think be able to, to to make sure it doesn't happen to your loved one yeah well you know pain doesn't play any favorites you know, I mean, everybody, everybody suffers and that's, and that's kind of the shift. And, and, you know, uh, there's a, uh, quote a couple of people, but there's a guy named Steven Diamond. He used to write for psychology today. Um, you know, he used to call addiction, uh, he used to use the term a denial of reality because he used to say so frequently, you know, you would hear people that would say, you know, I'm just, I'm not, I'm not hurting anybody. I'm just out here doing my own thing. I, I just have it, you know, like I, I don't bother anybody else, but that neglects the basic idea of like, yeah, but you know, you, you might be loved, you know, I, I mean, you know, Panoff, I'm glad that, that you got cleaned up because there wasn't going to be anything that was going to make me stop loving you. So I would have followed 
you know, I, I would have followed down some dark places just in the name of trying to, to, to get you in a good spot, you know, and, and I'm, and I'm smart enough to know I can't get you in a good spot. Mm-hmm. Right. I can't, I can't do it. You know, like it's not my job, but you know, it's not like there would have been anything that would make me say, no, Pondoff's dead as far as I'm concerned. You know, that mm-hmm. wouldn't have happened. I, I would have just, uh, you know, kept taking whatever body shots I needed to take to, to keep you around. Um, and you're not talking about the tequila style body shots. <laughs> no, I've never had to mess with that. Um, you know, but the other, the thing that comes up right away is, I don't know if either of you guys have heard of, uh, there's a guy named, I'll spell it out. There's a guy named Gabor Mate and it's, it's G-A-B-O-R-M-A-T-E, uh, first name, last name. Um, he wrote a book, uh, years ago called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. It's an addiction book. But he says his kind of famous quote is, we shouldn't ask why the addiction, we should ask why the pain. Ah, fuck, man. Um, and yeah, that's good. He talks a lot. So in uh, Hungry Ghosts uh, is a Buddhist reference, actually, um, and they use it as a metaphor for addiction because there's a bunch of levels. Uh, there's like the Tibetan Book of the Living and the Dead, which is kind of a famous thing. But um, the level above depending on the symbolism that you read, the level above the hell realm in Buddhism. Now, Buddhism is it's not meant to be mystical, so this isn't angels and harps or fire. It's just uh-huh. hell, very personal process. The level above the hell realm is the realm of hungry ghosts. And hungry ghosts have, like, a little mouth and a long neck and a big belly. So they're never, they can't get full. They're just always taking in and taking in and taking in, but they never fill up. And the, the thought is that what we do is a person will continue to stay to cycle into the realm of hungry ghosts so they never fall into their own hell, which is your pain. Hmm. And so addiction is considered the realm of hungry ghosts. I'm going to keep – I'll stay here where I'm feeding and feeding and feeding and feeding but never satisfied because if I stop that, I slide into this pain that I just don't want to feel. I and and the pain piece of it isn't like oh I'm avoided or I can't handle it or I'm not strong enough. The pain is like nobody's ever told me that it's okay to hurt. Nobody's ever told me that it's safe to hurt. Nobody nobody's ever said let's just make room for that. So I'm going to get out of it any at any means possible. Um, and that's and that's the the work of Gabor Mate looks at that. He was a um, he was a doctor in Vancouver. Vancouver has a second Canucks, right? Sorry. It was Sorry. topical. Still um, fresh. Still fresh. <laughs> they have a, uh, you know, historically have a part of town like most big cities, you know, kind of what's maybe stereotypically called a bit of a skid row. And, and he was the medical director in a program there that was working with a lot of people that were struggling with addiction. And, um, and he just wrote this beautiful book about it. And he's written a bunch of books about the, the link between trauma and addiction, but the realm of hungry ghosts is is gold standard. It's just amazing. Yeah, I, I I've said on this show, and I'm I'm so bad at reading books. Like I've had authors mail me their books uh, because of the podcast, and I feel so fucking bad. Like I get this guilt. I want to have this one author on the show, but I can't because I got to read his book first. Otherwise, I'll look like an asshole, and it'll be disrespectful. I don't. It's not that I, like, literally, can't read. I can. I can read, 
But so what I do is I try to pawn these books off on Ashley and then say, hey, you got to give me the give me the beef here. <laughs> sure. You don't really get it. You don't really get it. I have read, like I said, I read that uh, Mockingbird book. I was good stuff, right? And um, <laughs> like the movie didn't cover it as well. So I, I wrote it down. I'm going to try. I, um, and the portions that you're saying are just hitting me like a, like a you know, bolt of <laughs> that's how I said bolt of lightning. That's a funny inside joke. But they, they, they hit me. And there couldn't be anything more true than than those statements about pain and running from it, whether it's grief or trauma. I think they probably both fit here because a lot of grief is trauma, I I think. Um, Like I say, I'm not, you know, qualified to make any of those statements. But by my personal story and, and people I know that have, you know, lost children we've talked about on this show is probably the ultimate that I can think of, of grief scenario uh, that you never want. But to each person, each grief is hard and different. But that running from that pain is, I mean, I ran so fast from the pain when when my old man died for 22 months. And I, I mean, I was, my liver was, was, was done and it had it's and it still wasn't keeping me from from drinking a two bottles of whiskey a night and shooting rumplemans because I did not want to feel Tom's death at all um and I ran almost to myself to a grave by uh, by running from that pain so it really makes fucking sense to me man and I think it will to the listeners I know it will to the uh you know i think we're up to about eight eight listeners now but But you know i know (laughs) so right um i just i don't know i'm having goosebumps on on how much sense that makes um and how feeding that with that addiction to never be satisfied but there's a something's blocking you from going to that that hurt yeah. And I see it, um, and this is how I learn, right? I, I learn, and I'm always kind of four years behind. And so I'm not a progressive, but I run into a situation, and I'm like, oh, that's what fucking Jeff was talking about with the Black Lives Matter shit. I get it now, after it kind of hits you in the face. Um, or, oh, that's what fucking childhood trauma looks like now that I'm a foster parent. These people talking about it, weren't full of fucking shit and you mm-hmm. know I was kind of an asshole about it. So I'm working on that self-awareness thing that that um realizing like you said cut it off the knees that I don't know everything uh and, and I've kind of shifted to where I'm an always learning guy uh try to be but but the trauma that I see in these kids um or th- that I I try to see and then the the thought that there's so many kids out there that don't ever get told that, like you were saying, and, and don't have the ability to be their own therapist. I'm thinking about kids that grow up in poverty and become the the cycle of crime continues because there's anger and pain that is completely unfucking treated. Yeah. Well, and I just yeah I, I I don't know it's hit me and and as you talk about trauma. That's what all goes through my my head, man. Well, there's two big there's two big things that happen with 
with trauma. And, and I, I mean, I won't get into like brain science stuff because I think there's a lot of amateur brain scientists out there. And so if I started talking all about parts of the brain, you would quickly realize that I'm one of those amateur brain scientists. But, <laughs> you know, with, when a traumatic event happens, um, which, you know, you have to understand a lot of the trauma that we're talking about is, is chronic, right? Is a kid who was abused for years or a person that's in a domestic violence situation for years, right? So it's every day. Right. And this doesn't take away from a single incident, terrible car wreck, seeing something happen, witnessing violence, war, like things like that. But to talk about something that that is is home to this conversation. So like grief, loss, child abuse, things like that. There's two things that happen. Thing number one is the incident, the occurrence of what is happening, which is the threat to your life or your the threat to your mind's ability to think it's going to survive this. And the other thing is um, the realization that you live in a world that let it happen, right? Now, I'm not saying it's anybody's fault. I mean, if you're abused, it's somebody's fault. It's the abuser's fault. But um, it's, it's part one of this is happening, and it's part two of realizing that I live in a world that let it, right? So, like, when we're kids, that's particularly scrambling because part one, oh, my gosh, I'm being – locked inside for the weekend while mom and dad go on a weekend trip. I'm being hit. I'm being beat. I'm being neglected. I'm not being fed. Um, I have a medical condition and my parents don't fill my medication for it. I have terrible asthma and, and I don't get my albuterol because my dad doesn't give a shit. Um, you know, these things happen and they they take this incredible toll on, uh-oh, I might die. But as a child, we are developing, we have a mind that thinks that everything is our fault anyways, right? Like we're trying to figure out like, what do I have to do? So dad's not mean. What do I have to do? So mom doesn't freak out. Um, what do I have to do? So I don't get abused. And we're organizing the world through that lens, right? We're trying to figure out what we have to do um, to, to slow it down because we are rightfully so egomaniacs when we're children, right? Like the world revolves around us when we're children. We're even told that for the first couple of years of our lives, right? You're, mm-hmm. you know, if you're in a safe world, you're told as a two-year-old, oh my God, you're the most amazing thing on the planet. We're going to hang your garbage artwork on the lower part of the refrigerator, right? <laughs> like, you know, like that's not going to work when if the same drawing when I'm 19, they, they send me away. Like, but when I'm two, I'm Picasso. And so we handle things differently. But that idea that like, oh, that's right. Like, I'm in a world now that's unsafe. And and when we're children, we're supposed to be promised that we're in a safe world. And we're supposed to be promised that if something goes wrong, it's going to be handled, right? Like we're, as a child, like if you fall down and break your arm, it's terrible that you broke your arm, but you're supposed to be in a world that says, okay, let's go to the ER, let's get you a cast, let's have everybody sign it, let's make sure that you got help at school because that's the hand you write with. And those are the things that let you heal from the fact that something bad just happened. Hmm. But if something bad happens and nobody intervenes and nobody cares, you're, it feels like your suffering is going to bleed out into everything. So then you think you live in a world that can just let things happen. So you never feel safe and you never feel trust and you never feel attachment and safety. And let's say something comes along like alcohol or, or opiates, because that's much, that's pretty topical, of course. Um, opiates come along and all of a sudden, for the first time ever, you go, <sighs> yeah, everything just slows down. Um, you know, um, 
and this is still some of the work of Gabor Matei, but, uh, you know, when you interview somebody or you talk to somebody who's addicted to opiates, it's very common to hear them describe heroin or oxy or whatever as a soft, warm hug, or it feels like somebody putting a warm blanket over my shoulders. And the, the, that's not an accident. Like that stuff interacts with your brain in a very similar way to the, the same things that get released when you have a safe connection with your mother. Right. When you when you make eye contact with your mom who sees you and you see her and you don't know you're separate from that person when you're born. Right. Those moments are actually filling you with the similar kind of endorphin is what happens when you get with opiates. Right. Opiates are, are utilizing our natural painkillers in our system. And so it, it literally isn't an accident that an addict might say it feels like a soft, warm hug because for the first time in their life, they're getting one. So no wonder they love that substance. And then you tell them they got to quit it because it's going to kill them. Mm. They got to grieve it then. If you're going to tell, you know, like, you know, Panov, what you to get you to stop drinking, you had to grieve alcohol. And alcohol wasn't just, oh, my God, you love drinking. Alcohol was also a connection to your dad a bit, too. You guys knew how to get after it. Yeah. Amen. You know, and there wasn't a better there wasn't a better guy on the planet than Tommy Pondoff. I know that we all love Tom. You know, but that that comes in and it just takes that one little bit of like, oh, my God, this is what it's supposed to feel like. Right. And then by the time you can't stop it, everybody calls you a junkie and a fuck up and a loser. And you're just not. You just want somebody to love you. and Nobody ever has. Jeez. Yep. Man. I like. (laughs) I got goosebumps i'm sad i'm grateful all that shit man that's hearing you talk is uh i I just am so grateful for that perspective because people need to hear that shit so so bad i needed to hear it today do you know um this in my world this is is pretty common uh language but um have you guys ever heard of the adverse childhood experiences study they call it the aces it's, uh, it's ringing a bell, but it's around. It's it's kind of, but basically, what it is is it was research that was done to look at if you tally up the amount of adverse childhood experiences that somebody's been through to then see how that relates to other illnesses, right? And what mm-hmm. they found out was that the higher the ACE score is is what you call it, the higher the ACE score, almost every single health concern is higher. Now, there's other correlative factors, right, because the game changer in our country specifically is poverty. Poverty puts you at a higher risk for every health concern, every violent concern, every loss, grief, addiction, everything. Poverty is a – it just blows a crater in the statistics. But um, with the ACE stuff, there was certain things like – and I I don't have the statistic in front of me, so I hope I don't misquote it, but – I believe that a person that had four or more ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. So these are things like uh, death of a parent, um, incarceration of a parent, abuse, loss, violence, anything you think of. There's a whole checklist. Um, A person that had four or more adverse childhood experiences, I believe, was 12 times more likely to be an IV drug user than somebody with, I, I think, zero. So there's not a lot of people with zero, let's say. But to think of that number, if you could think of anything 
that creates a 1,200% increase for an illness, right? Like we would stop the presses for any other thing. If you were 1,200% more likely to drop dead from a heart attack because you eat X, Y, and Z food, we would burn that to the ground. But instead, we say that a kid who suffers mightily is 1,200% more likely to, to be an IV drug user, and we say, what a fucking junkie. Yeah. Mm. I mean, it's just it's just a wild thing. Like, the, the reality is, like, the, the higher level of human suffering that we have, the more exposed we are to anything from diabetes to heart conditions to drug addiction. Um, Nadine Burke Harris is a woman who is now the Surgeon General in California. And she has implemented ACE uh, checklists in all medical facilities. So now when you get admitted in the ER, you're going to do a checklist so that they're going to know going back there that you just had a heart attack, but you also have an ACE score of five. You know, you, you've had a tough life. Wow. So no wonder your ticker's given out. Oh, shit. Yeah, I'm sh- I would be certain that, that Ash knows about that test. I Oh, sure. I'm... A, sure. I'm fully invested now that's the way he put it that way and i did had not heard of it and if i had it was because i wasn't paying a fucking attention and you know my <laughs> foster parent training class that sometimes get a little long in the tooth <laughs> or when they start talking about when they start doing the you know the and it's it's bad of me to run from it but they start talking about the fucking sex shit i i i you have a tendency to want to bail asap sure. but those kids don't there's a reason why and that's although i did learn in stars class that it, it, sexual abuse is not the it, it's not the worst out of like the four it's it's neglect because there's some mm. warped there's and chaz you can correct me if i'm wrong there's some warped feeling of connection um when a child's being fucking abused like that um where then there's neglect there's nobody Nobody yep. loves me at all. But um, so, Chaz, you, I mean, and what I love about you is, is you identify all this, but you're also doing something to try to help and try to fix it. So you went from the prison and then you um, were in the social working field for yeah. how many years? Um, I worked in community mental health for 13 years after that um, wow. as a therapist there. Um and I did some work in the community too. I did some case management for a little while um, before moving to therapy full time again. But uh, all told, probably looking at about fifteen years' experience as a therapist. Yes. So just thousands of hours of one-on-one conversation. And you've done some some speaking engagements as well, right? Yeah, I train. You know, uh, current climate has changed that a little bit. I'm doing sure. Zoom trainings and stuff, but. Yeah, I, um, you know, my areas of specialization in terms of treatment have been trauma and specifically sexual trauma has been an, an area of, of uh, specialization for me. Uh, so I train a lot, um, just all over different conferences, different populations. Um, I train on a lot of secondary trauma too, on the stuff that affects the people that are doing the treatment. Um, because a lot of, a lot of those workers are just kind of exposed and, yeah. A lot of the leadership 
Um, and this isn't the leadership's fault necessarily, but a lot of the leadership is focused on the administrative stuff. You know, we got to get productivity up, we got to get billing up and things like that. So you wouldn't necessarily know if you have a clinician that's being kind of traumatized by these big, heavy stories. Um, so I've trained on a lot of that stuff and, um, and I've taught, I mean, I taught in the psychology department at McKendry, uh, for a while before getting brought on at the MSW program at SLU and then I teach, so I teach it at SLU now. I teach at St. Louis University now. But. Yeah, McKendry had a, a good hockey program there for a little bit, didn't they? Yeah. <laughs> Not while I was there. Yeah. Um, that, that secondary trauma, right before you said that, I, I was thinking about how you had said you specialized or did a lot of work in the sexual trauma um, field if you will, that when you go, unfortunately I've had some experience in a uh, pediatric oncology unit. When you sure. think of who the fuck wants, can, can do that job. Um, I thank God every day that there's the most amazing people in the world that can, but that's the same, that that's what it connected when you said that you work in that field because you're really throwing yourselves into, I mean, into the fucking fire, man. Um, uh, 99% of the people ha- would have a, such a hard time dealing with that in a productive way to help the patient, if you will. Yeah. And, and you can do that. And I was thinking, man, that that's, that's fucking heroic and brave. And then you brought up the secondary trauma, which I didn't even know was a thing. Um, but it makes complete fucking sense, man. Uh, to, to hear all that. I, I've, since I've started this podcast have been um, people have reached out and, and it, and I don't have that fatigue right now um, yet, but Ashley was always warning me, you got to be careful because I have absorbed a lot of, of, of stories and they're all the addiction of the, and why we're, where we're at and have had some, uh, conversations that are like you put it like as, as heavy as, as as they get you know maybe not to your your extent as a professional but i feel fatigued a little bit at the end sure. of at the end of some of the conversations and i feel that i like how the fuck am i going to be able to help this person or yeah. that i'm not qualified for this or and and my my first thing is is to to give them a ref, reference to the to the chaz of the world uh places for people uh yeah. hospitals fucking for um voluntary as i've learned now that you can't you know people can't be involuntarily committed to a mental institution i don't anymore that's not a thing stuff yeah yeah but which is so hard because there's some you know some people that are are suffering from a real serious delusion and try to tell them it's not a delusion and and you might yeah. get punched in the face. I mean, it's the reality, right? You almost have to play into it. But so with that being said, um, I, I've learned a lot just in this and, and you've helped me a lot. And, and I hope I don't get a fucking invoice from you because, um, it, you know, if I do, I'll give you the wrong address, but, uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't expect anything out of it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, um, you're able to invoice now, uh, 
because you started a, a tell me about your your venture your latest sure. venture i'm really really excited to hear about this um so i uh last year bought a building in downtown belleville which is an old it's an old historic building uh yeah. i love it it's beautiful an old brick building but it was um it was it was initiated by the thought of having a space that kind of spoke for itself like um the therapists out there in the world, you know, your wife is an example too, um, are just so good at creating a space. Like you just sit, you could sit in a broom closet with two folding chairs with a good therapist and still leave there thinking, man, that was, that's what I needed. Um, and, and we wanted a space that reflected that. We wanted these, these buildings that maybe in your mind's eye, it's how you think of a, a good, safe therapist's office, but most of us therapists just don't have access to that. You know, we're, we're in the hallway and, and across the hall is a dermatologist and then here's the therapist's office and, and that's fine. I mean, it, it is what it is. It's a healthcare profession, so it's not all bad, but, um, I purchased this old building and, and, and spruced it up and, and found some real like-minded people, uh, to create kind of a larger vision of what we wanted therapy to look like, um, with us. And because in, in my mind and the kind of therapy that I practice, um, it's very much so more of a rite of passage. Like you, you should be able to look at therapy as your right to sit there with a, a neutral, safe presence who is exactly what they say they are and to talk through some of the shit that makes this not easy for us. Um, and to not look at it as, oh my God, I'm having all these problems, but to look at it as I deserve to process and feel and explore um, without thinking that I have to be considered, you know, uh, in a bad spot because of it. Um, and so we called it Light Source is the name of the practice. Um, I love that name. I love that fucking name. I, I cool. looked on your website. It's I, really well, I appreciate that. It, it, I started talking to you know Amanda, my tattoo artist, and I was thinking about names, and, and uh, the, the image that kept coming up was more like, that that lamp that gives you just enough light to read or see the path right in front of you. I'm I'm not uh, somebody that always thinks that you can have a big aha, I see everything, sudden enlightenment moment. Even my history in Buddhism comes from the idea of you got to do this every day. You know, you gotta you gotta look, check on yourself, check on your view of reality, check on what you're clinging to and holding to every day. Um, and so we wanted something that reflected the idea of just being able to see, illuminate the path in front of you, right? Because when we're struggling, even with addiction and with trauma, you can't see shit, you know, like you, you can't, and it's not your, it's not your fault. You just can't see it. It's not clear. And, you know, and so we were just thinking about like, what do you need in the dark was the question that came up. And, and the answer was just, we just need a light source. <laughs> oh, that's that's it. You know, you don't you, you don't need a you don't need a floodlight. You don't need an answer. You just need a light source. You just need enough so that you can read what's on the page. It's awesome. Yeah, uh, I love the name. Um, you're downtown Belleville. You know, not far from Fridays. Just, <laughs> well, <laughs> your stomping grounds. Right. Yeah. Where where uh, are you in downtown Belleville? Uh, so we're on East Lincoln. Okay. Uh, which, uh, if you're if you're familiar, anybody listening familiar with Belleville, there's a YMCA at 159 in Lincoln, and so yeah. we're down on East Lincoln from there at 114. Awesome. Um, 
Yeah, it's a, it's a great old building. And I bought it from the, this guy who was just incredible, who'd owned it for close to 40 years. And he worked upstairs. He was There was a lawyer's office was the main level. And then upstairs was this guy's uh, lab, this dental lab, where he made different teeth and everything like that for oh, people. Wow. And, uh, and when I talked to him about it, because the building was just great already. It had new ductwork, and it's beautiful, and it's all new paint and everything. And, and he said, you know, God, I love this building so much. Um, and I knew if I didn't sell it, I'd never retire. So we're going <laughs> to we're gonna give you a deal on it so that I can finally let myself <laughs> work. And, um, and so got in there, and um, a, a long-term coworker and friend of mine named Jessica Mutton uh, came with me. And uh, she um, she's very like minded. Uh, she's been my kind of ride or die for a long time. Um, and then a woman named Kim Thomas and her certified therapy dog, Mila, um, <laughs> you know, uh, hopped on. And then we're going to have a woman named Kayla Anderson and a woman named Rachel Hudson uh, that will be starting there soon. And these are all just just tough as nails, loving people that just know how to handle it. They just know how to get in there with you and, and, you know, help you feel like it's okay to feel whatever you got to feel, you know, that no matter how big the feeling is, like it's not going to consume it. We got, we got a beautiful space for it. So let's look at it. (laughs) That's awesome. I got to have, I'll drive by there later and see where it is. Well, yeah, we got the sign up looking good. Good. Uh, Jeff um, has uh, not recently, but moved to Belleville and, and really called it, home which is uh mm-hmm. for a young him and his wife a young couple uh i can still call you guys young yeah i think especially Brittany. she's young she's 30 she looks yeah she looks young <laughs> she looks great his his wife is a real fucking ball breaker jazz and i i, I don't want to get in trouble with her. so um <laughs> she's firecracker man and yeah. uh she hangs with the boys <laughs> yeah so so they moved to Belleville. Get away with anything it's unbelievable unbelievable <laughs> They moved to Belleville. Uh, how many? How many years ago, Jeff? Uh, Twelve years ago. Yeah. yeah. And they've they've joined fucking committees and bought a beautiful home and a certain uh, mid-century home. Is that what it's yep. called? Yep. Been on a documentary about it. So they are. Uh, it, it's oh, a rare amazing. thing to see a young couple transplant to Belleville and really fall in love with it and try to make it better. So, yeah. Um, which is exciting and what you're doing by. You know, reinvesting into into downtown is a, and I got no skin in the game. I just I love the fucking town, man. I, yeah, yeah. I, we we want very much so to be. Uh, I'm very happy to own a business in the community. Like That's it's great. it's important to me that that it is that it's in Belleville and that it's right there in downtown, and that uh, that it's a safe place in downtown was kind mm-hmm. of the the goal is that it's it's a it's there to be safe and supportive and consistent, and that's part of being a trauma therapist, right? Like you have to be consistent. You have to be predictable. You have to be what you say you are, you know, accountability matters. And so I, I want to be part of the community and, and, and hold my, my water there. I want to pull my weight. That's cool. Um, You know, it's something that's not talked about in Belleville very often. And in downtown's the place where, where it is, is the homelessness. You know, there's a homeless population in Belleville that we don't think about. So anybody who's willing to invest like that in Belleville, downtown and uh, possibly uh, you know reach out to those kind of people or i don't mean those kind of people you know what i'm trying to get at though um i love it yeah i i I love i've become you know just a big fan of the community here so it's cool and 
Chaz, I was going to ask you, cause you've mentioned it a couple of times. So you, you do not drink. you never have, you've never partaken. No, I've never had a drink. Yeah. I grew up Catholic. So maybe wine at church. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, I've never had a drink, never had a drug, wow. uh, never smoked a cigarette. Wow. You know, it was very like punk rock, like a, like a straight edge kind of kid. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know there was a name for it when I was doing it, but yeah, that's we cool. All, he, we always had a, a guy that would come pick you up if you had too much. And <clears throat> I think you met me out for my 21st birthday at, uh, shenanigans. And I think I started a fight with yeah. my, me and my, um, my girlfriend at the time were not together, and we were seeing other people. And I ran into her and that other people that night, and it turned into a real big fucking shit yeah. show. I think oh, no, you drove me fucking from Fridays to that shenanigans. I, you know, I was forever I, hopeful that tonight was the night you weren't going to fight anybody. <laughs> so it, the we'll funny be okay. Thing, I'm here. I can handle it. I know people. We're all right. I'm not drunk. Um, you know, but. I didn't think that was good. That encounter was going to happen. Um, so in my defense, it was not my fault. <laughs> anyway, um, you're not laughing. I guess. Yeah. You've heard that before. <laughs> the, uh, at Chaz, I think this is what you're doing is, uh, I, I don't know how to articulate it well enough. Um, how awesome it is. And, and, um, I mean, fuck, are you, you, you taking new clients? I might need to meet one of these. I guess we couldn't probably do a thing, but I don't know if that's yeah, a... Plenty of rules for you. All right. Uh, nice. Are you guys seeing people now during... Explain how you were operating with the current yeah. environment. Um, so we're uh, pretty committed to telehealth for a while, um, which is a really interesting thing because if you rewind maybe a year the discussion of like online therapy has always had a little bit of traction as, as an option. You know, there's, there's apps, there's better health, there's things like that, that, you know, once they signed like Michael Phelps on to talk about like, this is great and this is what you need. And so it's always had a little bit of traction, but it's always predominantly been considered um, just not optimal, right? There's always this kind of like the mystical piece of like in-person, eye contact, affective shifts, all these different like immeasurables were always considered the most important. And then like literally in essentially like a 24-hour period, you know, everybody has to make the call that we can't be near any other human beings for a while. And so we picked up on telehealth. Um, and and this is kind of part of me wanting to be a consistent part of the community is we've also been pretty expressive that we're going to stay that way for a bit. We're not going to, it's, it's not necessarily good therapy to say, uh, you know what, I'll see you here. I'll see you online today, but maybe next week in person, I'll let you know Tuesday. And that kind of inconsistency is really rattling for people. Um, and so we've kind of stayed committed to it. We, you know, um, there is the concern of uh, some people don't have privacy or safety to be able to talk online. Um, now, a lot of those people do go to their car. I've, had, I've done a lot of therapy in cars where people are just holding their phone uh, with the app and, and having their, which has been okay. I mean, it's been fine. Um, but we definitely, um, we're, we're almost exclusively online with some exceptions. 
And in those exceptions, we are very careful. We are sure. six feet apart. We're disinfecting. Um, if um, one of the other, if, if a therapist has somebody coming in, um, the rest of us probably work from home is kind of the rule. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, you got one or two people coming in today. Rather than have more foot traffic that would make people nervous, we'll kind of let that be an isolated incident, clean up after. And um, It hasn't been bad. It's just you don't necessarily expect, you know, I've been open for a, a while now, but um, you don't expect one of your first decisions as a business owner to be that you're going to close your doors. Well, um, yeah. And so uh, we've been fine. It, it, it's the business isn't a concern. And, and uh, I don't consider there to be a real silver lining with something like a pandemic. But I do think there's been people that maybe wouldn't have reached out before that did during this because they knew they wouldn't have to leave home. They could try online. They could, you know, they wouldn't have to come to an office. And so I do think it's open to that door for some people. Um because one of the things that was a byproduct of the the pandemic was because we're all home and everything's online, there's a lot of people that are reaching out to people they wouldn't normally reach out to because they couldn't get to them. You know, my, my Buddhist teacher's in Brooklyn. Um, and I'm pretty sure that, uh, you know, the fact that you can meet online was one of the things that was a deciding factor in, I, I, this is the guy I want to teach me, so I'm going to reach out to Brooklyn. <laughs> right. Um, yep. you know, so it's, it's, it's been good, but we're, we're pretty much online and anybody that reaches out right now, um, we would, we would be online unless it was really extenuating circumstances. No, that it, I, I, you said it earlier. I, I, I talk to a gal once a month or maybe once every three weeks and she's, she's great, but it is different because it's shifted. It started, you know, I started seeing her before the outbreak or the pandemic yeah. and, there's a big it. You can't replicate that. You can try, and you can still help. We still get through some shit, but you can't replicate that in person. Yeah. Um, we're gonna, we're going to do a survey. Um, I, I've drafted a few questions, and I've kind of been dragging my feet to give it a little more time to set in. But we're going to do a survey just to get some data on how people are feeling about it. You know, we do a lot of check ins in real time. You know, a big uh, an important part of therapy should always be. Uh, checking on the relationship, you know, where the therapist says, how are we doing? You know, is this what you expected? Is this not what you expected? Did I, you know, did you have something real important today? And I started asking other questions and I bulldozed right through it. Like, I mean, we try to get a lot of real time feedback, but what I want to know more than anything is um, in an anonymous setting where somebody doesn't know that I know they're answering if I just ask a question like, are you able to get to the kinds of emotional material that you think you would in person? Mm-hmm. Um, if I, if I get feedback from a hundred people as, and, and 60 of them say that they're hedging on certain topics because they're worried about the lag or something like that, I will have to make a very serious decision about how I want to handle that. I can't have 60% of the people that are, are using our services uh, think that they're operating at two thirds. I can't do that. And I, and I don't know how I would handle that, but that's the feedback I need to get. I need that data and that information or I'm not going to be who I say I am. Well, yeah, it's, it's a tough time, man. And, and I'm, I'm excited for you guys to be, um, you know, up and running, and that place would be like Grand Fucking Central Station. People, yeah, coming we're, we're killing it. It's been great. Yeah, we're killing it. And everybody, I have so much trust for these people uh, that are with me. Yeah, um, I, 
Chaz, I, I I want you to finish, but I I wouldn't. I do, I know you more than this podcast and more than listeners. You're not going to have somebody in there. That's why it's kind of laughable to me to think. But you do need to explain it that you're not going to have somebody working with you um, on on this that you yeah. don't fully fucking trust and almost you know to a point love. Yeah, <laughs> everybody in there. Everybody in there is a cleanup hitter. There you, you go. Know? <laughs> everybody in there is is absolutely ready. You know, a lot of people reach out um, to a therapist and they kind of say the equivalent of, I've had a lot of stuff I know I've needed to work on for a while and it's time that I do that work. Um, You know, and we are just, we are game ready for that sentence. That's, that's where we're at because I just wouldn't bring somebody in there that can't just hold the space, that can't Mm -hmm. just do the work, get in there, and and bring a shovel with you, you know. Let's just get digging and see what we find, nice. and and learn how to love every part of you. You know, I mean, that's that's the big goal with a lot of therapy is these parts of you emerge that maybe you're ashamed of, or that you shut down, or you avoid, or you avert your eyes. Um, and you know, with a little bit of a light source, you don't avert your eyes from that shadow anymore, right? Like, I mean, it it illuminates, and we want to love see, it. We want to see all of you. I love yep. it. What <clears throat> I'll put this on the uh, when we post the show notes and, and and share the podcast. It'll release Monday morning. Uh, we're recording this on Saturday, and um, I'll, is it okay to put your website on there? Your the address and phone number. What's the uh, what's the website again? Just the, the website is findyourlightsource dot com. Findyourlightsource dot com. I love it, and people can reach out. Um, I'm <laughs> sure there's a. On the website, email, contact, all that good stuff. Everything, yeah. Um, Chaz, this has been everything and then some, man. I, um, I'm really grateful. You know, every time I think about going to see a shrink, a shrink. Excuse me. Is that a, is that nope, is that is, is that a derogatory term for therapists? I don't know, but no, I'm not triggered or anything. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I I think of Tony and, and Doctor Melfi, uh, sure, the Sopranos. So. Uh, you know, I, I but I, I, for some reason, I, uh, I've avoided it for, for a long time. But then I ended up, like my my personal light sources in my life have been um, de facto therapists, whether they like it or not, whether it was a pastor at our church or my even my fucking primary care physician who. Um, I may have not mentioned this on the show yet, but I'm, I'm kind of secretly in love with. Uh, You've mentioned oh. it a few times. Okay, I have. All right. <laughs> Ashley is this little. She's a little Indian goddess, and I, I can say that right. Um, and uh, but my Ashley's number one. My she's my sweet princess number one. Um, but it, it, I think Ashley's probably been done some therapizing, if you, <laughs> if that's a word with I'm me sure. as well. So uh, and she's actually pushed me to go see. Um, if really, what's helped me is the the struggle of of being a foster parent and, and dealing with that secondary trauma if you will because it can be brutal so it's been really helpful for that um but every time she tries this is you'll like this Chaz. every time she tries to talk about the fucking hard shit aka tom pond off um it, it's my exit strategy and I, she says i'll the therapist says i'll only bring it up uh as i'm leaving she calls it the doorknob conversation yep. right have you heard that before uh-huh. <laughs> the, the 49 minute mark by the way did you know tom's dead see you next see you in a month (laughs) so um that's my strategy so that if i ever 
if I ever use your sources, I know I'm not going to have time for uh, to, uh, that's not going to fly there. But no, don't play around. <laughs> I think what you're doing is, is amazing. Uh, you've often been a, um, a a light source for me through my recovery journey, uh, and we've often, you know, shot, I've shot you texts and stuff on 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 the Charlie situation and um, and other thing, yeah. you know, foster stuff and, and recovery stuff. So. I know what you can do. You've been you've been fucking ther- my therapist since I was fourteen, as you said earlier. And I'm real uh, bad at it then. <laughs> well, you've, you've gotten you, you've honed in on your skills, man, and um, keep doing what you're doing. Uh, you know, I um, yeah this this couldn't have gone any better. I, mm-hmm. I what a you've said so many things. I've never taken this much fucking notes during a podcast uh, that I've that I've done with. Uh, authors and quotes and shit i mean i feel like i was in fucking high school or college again taking notes here i can barely read them but i'll, I'll decipher them uh you might have you might actually have to read a book chris yeah <laughs> figure it out we're, we're leaving uh tomorrow morning uh to head down to to table rock for for a week and um it, they don't have that gabor uh mate uh, on the uh, audio, like the book on tape yet, do they? I'm sure they do, yeah. Oh, really? Fuck, I was trying to dodge that. Oh, yeah, you're screwed. He's got, he's got a TED Talk, too, if you only want 18 minutes. Oh, there you go. Well, I'll, I'll have to check them out, and I'll uh, I'll turn my paper in uh, uh, by Monday morning. I appreciate it. He's a sweet man. I've, I've talked to him. He's a very sweet man. He's, awesome. he's the real deal. Well, you you tell Holly thanks for popping on pre for the show and introducing herself, and I look forward to meeting her in person. Yeah, she's um, awesome. And uh, unfortunately, or fortunately, however you want to look at it, she didn't never get to meet the uh, old Chris. But uh, but it's better just to tell the stories and not actually have to go back and live that. So. <laughs> well, you're doing you're doing important work here too. Uh, I you know as we close out, I'll say like, uh, and this goes with you and your kiddo. You know, talking about all this foster care stuff. Um, when we talk about trauma, we talk and we talk resiliency. They talk about risk factors and protective factors. Um, and the number one protective factor for someone is having one safe adult. If a, if a kid has one safe adult, and it doesn't mean mom or dad necessarily. It could be, damn, my sixth grade teacher, Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so always looked out for me. Having a reference of a safe adult, a person that is who they say they are, who doesn't waver from that path and they, they can internalize that here and here. That's the number one protective factor for people that have been through some of this hairy shit. So you're doing important work out here too, Pondoff. Like you're helping a lot of people. People need to hear you. People need to hear, man, uh, there are certain parts of your life that you really have had to traverse that have been really tough and you're doing it. And it's important that you be out here talking because people need to hear that that tough shit doesn't go away. It's okay to have it with you. It's okay every now and then if you're if you're dragging that body behind you. That's all right. Sometimes you'll put it down. Sometimes you'll pick it up. But it's there. So, you know, we appreciate having you out here too. Well, thanks, Chaz. And, and for everything you said throughout this podcast, man, I I, 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 I love you just as much. And um, have always uh, – you've always been my big brother. Um, there's no question. And uh, – and Tommy P loved you too, man. He uh, he would always have to say, "Chazzy, what the fuck are we gonna do about him?" <laughs> and he was saying that to you when you were eighteen, you know. Like, hey. <laughs> so I, I I appreciate you uh, 
trying to, to pick up where he left off, and uh, it's something I'll never forget, man. And, yeah, I'm not going anywhere. And uh, he he may not have been the uh, the the best uh, ref uh, referee on the ice, but um, he, he he's the only guy that could give a guy uh, two and ten and have the guy laughing his ass right. off on the on the way to the penalty box, you know? <laughs> which is a very therapeutic move. I admire that move. Uh huh. Hey, hey, I think one time uh, our our buddy Jeremy Gwynn put somebody through the fucking plexiglass into the into the parking lot and. Uh, and, and and Tommy P told you know Jeremy Gwynn's old man a loud mouth you know guy Bill, God yeah. bless him he said, hey, hey Bill was like what'd you call that for he's like Bill he goes the guy's fucking twitching he goes the next time tell Jeremy to make me to to, to you know to not you know, do it behind my back and I won't cut right. <laughs> he goes I wasn't gonna call it until <laughs> until the guy started ch- twitching <laughs> we had a seizure <laughs> I had to do something but uh, but man I appreciate you and and I just look back at um, at those memories, and I do smile, man. I uh, and they they definitely evolved TP, but um, but where you were uh, throughout a lot. I always I look back at, at some of those stories and like, man, I really fucked that up. But Chazzy would Chazzy would be there to you know to tough love it or or or, or help me through it. And um, I I was super excited all week. I couldn't wait to get to Saturday to do this. And uh, thank you. I'm glad. Thanks for having me. You too, yeah. Jeff. Good to meet yeah, you. Man. To you too. We'll have to get some uh, coffee when it's safe down at Balance yeah, or something. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, if I'm invited, I'd love to to join you guys as soon as we get through that. You're absolutely to, invited to the other yeah. side of this pandemic. But Chaz, thanks again. Thanks for sharing your 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 wisdom, your your knowledge, your humor. Uh, I really appreciate the uh, your insight to your spirituality and, and Buddhism. I think there's some um, you know, real, real. I hate to keep saying this term, but light sources for people that that will connect with, and um, mm-hmm. it, you know, the, the higher power turning turning my life over because I can't do it all on my own is what's probably saved my life, as you sure. you know mentioned at the beginning of the show. So I love you, and uh, thank you so much, sure. and and uh, we'll have to do this again, but let's get together soon, brother. Yeah, love you, brother. All right, guys, amen, and as always, uh, let us pray. If you're struggling or know someone that is, please, please have them check out our podcast and reach out to Chris or me. We want to listen, and we're super eager to help. Pondoff's Anonymous is Chris Pondoff and produced by me, Jeff Allen. Our music is Antihero by McCall and Gentle Waters by Wild Wonder. For more information, visit pondoffsanonymous.com. Find us on Facebook and Instagram. 